We're going to start tonight with a bit of a mountaineering lesson. So those of you who know me know that I have a background uh, working in the outdoors, and there's probably not, there's nothing that's more terrifying <clears throat> than getting lost in the forest, and maybe that's happened to some of you. So I want to give you a bit of a mountaineering orienteering technique. Uh, when you are lost and hiking in the forest, <clears throat> what you need to, to do, if you can, and, and presumably you've got a map and a compass or you can't do this, is do something that's called triangulation. So you're lost, you actually need to find three, at least three, good, solid, prominent landmarks around you. Landmarks that you can discover on the map. And then you need to take a bearing off of each one of those landmarks and then orient that, that bearing on your map and draw a line with the straight edge of your compass off of these three prominent landmarks. When you draw those three lines, this is where you get the idea of triangulation three, those lines will come together at a point on the map. And if you've done your triangulation properly, you'll all of a sudden discover where your location is on the map, no longer be lost, and now be able to continue your journey to wherever it was that you were going. So that's the process of triangulation. As we continue on in this series on Ephesians called The Brave New World, Paul moves into a new section. We finish the long sentence in verse 14 of chapter 1, move into chapter, verse 15, and Paul practices some life triangulation for those of us who might be lost. Now remember the metaphor Paul is retelling in his eruption of praise the story of the Exodus. And remember last week that we talked about the fact that this phase of the story that the church is in is in the wilderness. So this illustration of triangulation is not far afield because the wilderness, like the forest, is a place that you can easily get disoriented and lost. And in the midst of the wilderness, it's often very difficult with the messiness of life. We talked last week about the wilderness being a place of trials and tribulations and temptations and testing. In the midst of those experiences in the world that we know today, it can be very, very easy to get lost. Very easy to get focused simply on the details, literally three steps in front of us, and to begin to lose our orientation to the broader world around us and the situation that we're in. It often, in our experience, doesn't seem like Jesus is king, even though we proclaim that boldly and loudly, as we sang earlier, together as a community who follows Jesus. Instead, we find ourselves more often than not in a place of groaning, Romans 8, in a place of wrestling. In the original context to which Paul is writing, most likely to the churches in Western Asia Minor, this possibility of being lost or of feeling forgotten or of being unsure is much more heightened, I would say, than it is even in our world today. A lot of commentators will say that the reason the book of Ephesians focuses on the cosmic powers, which it does more than any other letter in the New Testament, is because those to whom it's written are encountering a world <clears throat> where the powers and the spirits and the principalities are deeply at work and noticeable and prominent in the socio-cultural context of their day. That is to say that in the Greco-Roman world into which Paul was writing, religion was not something as it has been often for us as modern or postmodern people that was privatized. But religion was something that was very much in your face, in the nitty-gritty details of everyday life, in your home, in the civic societies and structures around you, in the political structures, all the way up to the 
to the divinization of Caesar as Lord and the imperial cult of the, the cult of uh, the imperial cult worshiping the emperor. And there's a lot of complexity about how that actually worked out. But the reality is, everybody in the first century knew that the world was charged with with principalities and powers that were working through, say, in in, uh, the town of Ephesus, the cult of Artemis, but many, many other kinds of cults and worships going on so that they might find themselves in this sea of of religious uh, devotion, piety, sacrifice, festivals, all in all through, like every part of, of their life experience, brushing up against powers and movements and people groups and thinking all of a sudden, you know, this Jesus that we worship as king of the world certainly seems a lot less results-oriented than Artemis or, or Caesar. And finding themselves wrestling and struggling with what they were facing in their everyday experience. So Paul, turning after this eruption of praise, shows us a bit of his apostolic heart of his pastoral heart. And he says, you know, I remember you. I've heard of your love, your faith in the Lord Jesus, your love for all the saints, verse 15. And I don't stop giving thanks for you when I remember you in my prayers. Let's just stop there for a second and say, this is is not the kind of like relationship that's dry and dead. Paul is laboring for the men and women and children who will receive this circular letter making mention of them in his prayers. Longing that they would find their orientation in order that they might live lives of faithfulness to the new and true king, Jesus, and find their place in the brave new world that God is making in the Messiah. And so he prays. And he prays that they could see. Elsewhere, Paul said, To the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5, he said, we walk by faith, not by sight. We all know that when when we walk by sight, it's incredibly easy to get lost and discouraged. We walk by faith. And so what then he says here is that he wants their faith capacity to expand so that they can see. And the expression that he uses is beautiful in verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. I want you to see, but it's not just that I want you to see visible, physical realities. I want you to see something deeper and bigger and more, more that goes beyond the physical realm into this brave new world that God is working out and making. That's his prayer. He wants them to see. He prays in verse, or he says in verse 17, he says, I remember you, my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, and this is what he wants him to give them, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Wisdom involves seeing. Revelation involves unveiling and seeing. In the knowledge of him, the Father of glory. I want you to see. We read from 2 Kings 6 earlier. They were in a place called Dothan, which reminds me of Gotham. I don't know why. It just kind of sounds like the same. They were in Dothan, Elisha and his servant. Now, Elisha had been thwarting the king of Syria because he would speak the words that the king of Syria would whisper in his bedroom to the king of Israel. So the king of Israel could avoid the Syrian king's attack. 
And so the king of Syria is not pleased when one of his servants tells him, hey, it's Elisha who's against you. And so he gathers his army and he goes to Dothan and he surrounds the city. And in the morning after his coffee, the servant of Elisha gets you know, awake and walks outside to see the beautiful day. And lo and behold, the Syrian army is gathered around. And he's frightened. And he runs back into Elisha and says, Elisha, what are we going to do? They're surrounding the city. There is no escape for us. And then Elisha prays this prayer for his servant. First he says to the servant, don't be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. I wouldn't be surprised if that story was in the background in Paul's mind as he's penning this letter to the Ephesians. And it says, so the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountains, the mountain was full of horse, horses and chariots all of fire all around Elisha. Paul wants to open the eyes of those to whom he's writing so they can see. And he wants to open their eyes so that they can see three massive landmarks, three incredibly important parts of how we live human life. And these by no means just apply to those who call yourselves Christians. This is a human reality. These three things that Paul opens, wants our eyes to be open to, are three things that every one of us needs and has in some measure or another to live our lives as human beings. And he wants them to see, not just so they, they can have the joy and privilege of seeing this great view, but so that for the whole purpose and the burden of this letter is that they, Ephesians 4.1, would walk worthily of this calling. I want you to see. I want your eyes to be open. I want you to see the mountains, number one, number two, and number three, that are around you so you can get your bearings again and that you can live your life faithfully in the midst of your day-to-day in the wilderness. That's where Paul heads in this section of the letter. And he wants them to see three things. And here they are. First, what is the hope to which he has called you? The hope to which he has called you. We have a necessity in human life for hope. This is perhaps not more dramatically illustrated than in Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. Sorry for the antiquated title. Man's Search for Meaning. Coming out of his experience in the concentration camps in World War II. Frankl was an Austrian psychologist, study, student of human nature. And this is what he says in his book as he recounts his experience in the concentration camps about humankind. He said, any attempt at fighting the camp's psychopathological influence on the prisoner by psychotherapeutic or psychohygienic methods had to aim at giving him inner strength by pointing out to him a future goal to which he could look forward. Instinctively, some of the prisoners attempted to find one on their own. It is the peculiarity of man that he can only live by looking to the future And this is his salvation in the most difficult moments of existence. And then he goes on to recount this about those prisoners that he observed losing their grasp upon hope. The prisoner who had lost faith in the future, his future, was doomed. 
With his loss of belief in the future, he also lost his spiritual hold. He let himself decline and became subject to mental and physical decay. Usually it began with the prisoner refusing one morning to get dressed and washed or to go out to the parade grounds. No entreaties, no blows, no threats had any effect. He just lay there, hardly moving. If this crisis was brought about by an illness, he refused to be taken to the sick bay or to do anything to help himself. He simply gave up. There he remained, lying in his own excreta, and nothing bothered him anymore. It is the peculiarity of humankind that he can only live by looking to the future. We need hope. We have to have hope. We talked last week about our guaranteed inheritance as followers of Jesus, as those found in the Messiah, that it's not some little compartment, some little part, some little treasure, but it's inheriting the whole brave new world that God is making in and around his son, Jesus. And I think Paul knows that in a very strong sense, what Frankel writes about 2,000 years later in his own devastating experience in the concentration camp is that when we begin to lose sight of this hope, Sure, we may continue to live on and we may continue to have sub-hopes and all kinds of other human ambitions, but our spiritual lives begin to do exactly what Frankel watched the lives of those prisoners doing in a real physical sense. And they begin to diminish and deteriorate and lack attention. Hope. That the, the eyes of your heart would be open to know what is the hope of your calling. This hope of resurrection, this hope guaranteed by resurrection, this hope guaranteed, as we saw last week, by God's Holy Spirit being poured out inside of you, sealing you, guiding you, directing you. Do you ever think about this hope that God has given to you? In the midst of the circumstances in which you find yourself, in the midst of the story right now where you might be very lost, discouraged, and disillusioned, do you lift your eyes up? Paul's encouraging us, lift our eyes up. Paul knew discouragement. Paul knew hardship. Paul knew suffering. Read 2 Corinthians 11 sometime. Paul carried around a wealth of suffering and hardship. And yet as he says in Philippians 3, look, I resolved to forget what's behind and to press on toward the goal. What kept him going was the goal. What kept him going was the hope of glory, the hope of inheriting the world. The future that was certain and secure by Christ's resurrection, by the indwelling of the Spirit, that's what drove him forward. There is little hope for us to march faithfully through the wilderness by the power of the Spirit, apart from our eyes being open to see this hope. Do you see it? Do you sink your life into this hope? That's the first peak to get your bearing off of in the world that we live in. The second thing that he says, the second deep human need. Verse 18. What are the riches? This is the second peak. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Which is to say, this is about belonging. There isn't one of us who can live without a sense of belonging. And when human beings lose their connectedness to relationship, we lose what is at the center of who we are and we begin to diminish. 
He wants our eyes to be open to know what is the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. That is to say, we don't usually think this way, but that is to say that God has set his hand upon you and me and said, you're mine. I love you. You belong to me. And I get to inherit you. Now here's a question, and we ask this question all the time in our lives. What does God think about me? And I've heard it so many times, because we really do. And I don't think it was any different in Paul's day, and I think that's why he put this in this prayer. That's why this is what he prays for his churches. We struggle to think that God could look in any way favorably upon us. We really do. We know how compromised we are. We know what a difficult struggle it is for us to have any faith at all. We know how strong our doubts are. And we know how short we fall to the standards that God has set for us, and even to the standards that we've then embodied in our own lives and longed to set for ourselves. We know what we've done that nobody else knows. We know what we've thought that nobody else knows. And these things start over time to cause us to question, could God really? Does God really care for me? Does God really know me? Does God really love me? Does God really want me? Those are serious questions, and we ask them frequently. The second peak that Paul's plotting on their map and and placing at a high elevation is to say, no, you need to know the glorious inheritance that God has in the saints, in you. That yeah, even though you're compromised and even though you denied him last week and even though you lack faith this week and even though you struggle and even though you're far, far from the longing that he has for your life, he can't delight in you anymore. He can't love you any stronger. How do you know that somebody values you? You know, how do you know that we value something in our culture? You know that we value things by the price we're willing to pay for them. What did God pay for you? 1 Peter 1. We were redeemed not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of the Lamb. He could pay no higher price for you. He loves you. And Paul wants you to know that you're his inheritance and that he looks at that inheritance and believes it's a treasure and a glorious one. Yeah, you and me, all messed up, far from perfect. That's the second peak. The third one, verse 19, and this lasts until verse 23, but I'll keep it brief. The third peak that he wants to then bring these three lines together so that you know who you are and so that you can begin to walk faithfully, to live a life worthy of this great calling and this great hope that you have because you're in the Messiah, because you have faith, a gift, as we'll see in chapter 2 from God himself, is power. Power. Everybody's got to deal with the power question. We put our hope and power in something. And a lot of times it's right in ourselves. Our mind. Our strength. Our grit. Our determination. Sometimes it's in our parents. Even into adulthood. Sometimes it's in our careers. We place our need for power somewhere. 
And Paul says, I want you to know and remember the milieu into which he's writing. Remember the principalities and powers that are swirling around. Remember Caesar, who's declared himself to be Lord and the peace of Rome by military might that he's declaring is going to bring prosperity. Remember this world into which he's writing. And Paul says, no, no, no. I want you to know what is the immeasurable greatness. And he gets, he gets emphatic. He starts to use words and piece them together. He just wants to know, he wants you to know how great and how grand and how extreme this power is. The immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. It's not a power that's impersonal and it's not a power that remains sealed off from your life. It's a power that's toward us, applied to us, working out in our lives. According to the working of his great might. This great might, by the way, by which he raised his son from the dead. Death couldn't hold him anymore. By which he raised his son up to the highest places in the heavenlies, above all powers and authorities. That's where he goes. And put everything under his feet. You think the people getting this letter get the point? All these gods around you, all the swirling stuff around you, none of it can touch you. Because the power of this God is toward you is working out in your life. Everybody's got to deal with the power question. And Paul says, I want you to know that there is power, there is power, immeasurable power, that's working in you and in your community that's imperfect, that's divided, that's frustrating to you, and working in the world. Now we say, well, it doesn't sometimes think, I don't feel this power at work in me. And it's paradoxical, isn't it? Because of that cross, the cross, the symbol at the heart of the Christian faith. This wasn't a moment of weakness, though it felt like it. This was a moment of power. And so one of the radical things about this brave new world that's moving forward is that power doesn't look like Caesar and his armies and his legions forcing their will upon the situations around them. But it looks like Jesus dying and breathing his last and gasping and hurting in order that the powers of this world would be broken. That a new way for power, which is defined by love, would expand through the world. And yes, sometimes that feels painful in our lives. And a lot of times that hurts in our lives. And it's an upside down way of thinking. But Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 12, right? When he's prayed about this thorn in his flesh. And he says, look, I don't feel strong. I feel weak. I've got this thorn in my side of my flesh. And, and it doesn't please me. And it's not enabling me to go out and conquer and have my best life now and everything else. I'm missing something. What does Jesus say to him? My grace is sufficient for you. Why? For my power is made perfect in weakness. This immeasurably great, great might, all this emphatic emphasis on power, is at work in you, right now, whatever your circumstances, whatever your weaknesses, whatever your struggles. That's peak number three. Therefore, whatever it is that you're facing in life, wherever you find yourself tonight, perhaps in a time of transition or a time of suffering, or maybe in the midst of sin and just wrestling and feeling like your life is a mess, or doubt, or perhaps it's just numbness, Paul wants and longs, and God the Spirit longs for our eyes to be opened. For us to triangulate around hope 
and belonging and power. Every human needs those things to live. God's gift to you in Jesus is that those things belong to you now. In immeasurable ways. In wonderful ways. So that you can begin to walk faithfully, worthily. And you can say in whatever situation that you find yourself in right now, whatever the forest that you're sort of having a hard time seeing out of, whatever that is, you can ask this question. God, what do you want me to do now? God, how do you want me to use my circumstances now to bring glory to your name? How do you want me to open my life to you now? Because I know, I know that you have a future for me. And it's certain and secure because I know that you love me and I belong to you and I am your inheritance. And because I know that your power is working in my life, I can rest in those things. God, what do you want from me now? Paul prays that we would have our eyes open. That we might walk then in this way faithfully through the forest, faithfully bearing witness to him. Let's pray. Father, our our King, Jesus, our Lord, it's obvious Paul prays these things because we can't work them out in our own strength. That Paul was on his knees praying these things because we know that we need an act of grace and an act of mercy to even see them in a way that they begin to shape our lives and to locate our lives. God, I ask for your mercy. I ask that you would open up the heavens, Lord, and pour out your spirit upon us, wherever it is that we find ourselves, that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened to see this hope, this belonging, and this power in real ways in our lives today, tomorrow morning, Wednesday night, throughout this week. Lord, do this by your grace that we might see what is real and true. In Jesus' name, amen.